When is the last time you listened to a podcast about web development, web design, and small business and didn't fall asleep? Yes, we cover web development, web design, and small business, but like actual human beings with personalities. If you're a beginner, we're not going to talk over your head. It's more like asking your buddy for help. We have guests, we have fun, and let me tell you, these two can get off on a tangent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to HTML All The Things Podcast. This is Matt Lawrence and Mike Curran. That's right, everybody. We are back, and this is episode 221, What Not To Do in Web Development. In this episode, we're going to obviously cover all the things you should not do, but we've broken it down into a couple subcategories, such as with clients, don't do this. With dev job, in, in the dev side of things, and the actual development, the programming side, don't do this. In the Git side of things, don't do this, and stuff like that and there's another one there learning as well what not to do like tutorial hell and other things like that so if this sounds interesting to you and you want to support the show you can go check us on that patreon leave a review rating on your podcast app join us in our discord server or share this with your friends and now mike what uh what shouldn't we be doing what category are we on let us know okay uh i mean there's a lot of things not to do (laughs) in your job or in web development in general. There's a lot of meme ones here. So there's there's stuff like, you know, don't, you know, push node modules into your uh, into your Git repository with like 10,000 files and stuff like that. But there's some other stuff here that I think is going to be kind of new for you with stuff that you haven't heard of and might be valuable. So we're going to start with clients. So we're talking from like a freelancer perspective or you're just trying to get in, get your foot in the door. So you're taking on clients on like guru or freelancer.com or whatever the heck they're up work. Um, what not to do with those clients. And we're going to jump right into the first one here. And Matt and I have talked about this in length recently. Don't undervalue yourself. So when you are presenting, when you are making a proposal, when you're getting the requirements for a project, when you're giving a estimate to the client, keep in mind that you are providing value. You're providing significant value. That's why they've come to you. They need a website done. They need it because they need more conversion. They need it because they need their customers to find them so that their customers can pay them money, right? So they're trying to use you to leverage to get more transactions. That's at the end of the day what a web develop what what a web design what website does for a for a company and that's how you should sell it as well and when you sell it that way when you're selling that hey your services are going to lead to more income and you have to have you know information to back this up but it's all available we've talked Matt and I have talked about it in a million different episodes you can find the information on how to sell yourself you can find the information on how to provide that value by SEOing the crap out of the website by telling the customer how they can go up the search ranks by doing whatever that needs to be done for them, all of that, that comes at a price. And if you're just going to be selling the customer a, you know, a business card website for them to have an online presence, quote unquote, which is something Matt and I did a while. And we, that may or may not have been mistakes and stuff like that, whatever, like it was quick money. But at the end of the day, that's really not how you should sell yourself. You should sell your, you should sell it as you're trying to provide value to that company. And that comes at a price. And that price needs to be something that will 
actually move the needle for you. So if you are doing this to support your family, if you're a freelancer, you're an agency owner, and you're doing it to support your family, you have to take the, that consideration into account when you're making your prices. If you, if you know a project's going to take you two weeks of your time or three weeks of your time, you need to price it so that it makes sense for you to work on it for those three weeks. Or if you can, you know, balance two or three projects, depending on the size, price that in as well. At least when you're starting out, that's kind of how I like to do it. Because if you're going to charge too little, the incentive for you to keep going on it is actually not going to be there. It's going to hurt your customer. Charging too little will, I guarantee you, hurt your customer because any extra request they give you, any adjustment, anything that goes wrong during the project, anything that delays it, you're going to have in the back of your mind being like, I'm not getting paid enough for this. It's, it's going to make a worse product at the end of the day. If you're charged appropriately, if you're making enough money, you are going to be more motivated to complete the project in the in a good way, in a way that's going to benefit your customer. And that's why I think it's really important to not undervalue yourself, to make sure that the client is getting the best product and they're providing you with enough income to live. And when you're again, when you're starting out, this is the hardest part. This is one of the like pricing. Google it. Try to find how to how to price, and the articles all over all over the place. The estimates that you're gonna get that you're gonna get are all over the place. One uh, the same site could cost anywhere between two hundred dollars to ten thousand, and I'm not exaggerating here. We've seen it, Matt and I have seen it a million times where we've come in and we've had these negotiations. And what I like to the baseline that I like to make is like. You charge somewhere, obviously, in the between, in the middle of that, somewhere that's going to make it so that you're incentivized. When you're first starting out, you might have to go a little bit lower, a little bit more of a discount, but don't make it so that you're literally losing money by working on this project because it's not going to benefit your customer. I guarantee you. They can go out. If they can't afford it, they will, they can go out and find someone that can, but you want to work with customers that are a partnership with you. They want to, you want to work with customers that are going to help you continue forward in this business rather than working with customers that are going to drag you down. Well, one thing we covered a lot in our, uh, in our, we actually have an episode all about how to charge more. And one of the big things is value. You're offering value to the customer. In what areas are you offering value? Uh, literally, in which are you adding a piece of functionality to their website that is going to give them a bunch of revenue? For example, like an e-commerce store. And then also what you and your team bring to the table, how skilled are you? Are you really versed in a bunch of the technologies and you're going to avoid a lot of the pitfalls or you're going to choose the best technology or choose like a really good technology and you're not pigeonholed into just WordPress? Or are you very good at WordPress and you're you're going in and instead of someone just sort of fumbling around on WordPress, you're bringing every bit of knowledge you have and you can fix any problem, troubleshoot things quickly. Those are all things that are all about value. Uh, but one thing that Mike mentioned was we used to do the business card website for sort of a package deal. There is sort of a lag, I suppose you could say, in value that you offer because you, you, you and your skill set are ultimately what you're bringing to the table and your skill set will naturally grow as you work. Whether you're actually learning new technologies or just becoming more familiar with whatever it is you're working on, you can really add value to 
someone's project just by having five years experience, having two years experience, going from one month to two months of experience even. You've seen your fair share of things to troubleshoot. You've seen your fair share of things that have gone wrong. Uh, you've had your fair share of panic moments where suddenly everything goes down and you don't know what you're doing. Whereas now, if that happens in production or if that happens just in general, you've been there and you at least know where to look. Do you have all the answers? No. But as you accrue time on a given technology and expand the amount of technologies you understand, given time, you've been through the ringer, so to speak. And now you know a bunch of a bunch of stuff, a bunch of knowledge on a technology, on a different technologies, whatever it is you've been learning. And that's valuable to a client. And so starting out and you you're just, you know, you just started using WordPress or you just started using vanilla and you're trying to sell uh, some business card websites for two hundred fifty dollars, five hundred, whatever the going rate is these days. It isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's you're trying to get a portfolio piece. You're trying to get a little bit of money. Is it going to pay all the bills? No, but you're going to go in there. Someone's going to give you a request like, hey, I want a slider in here. You've never worked with a slider before. You go put a slider on their on their website and bam. You know, now you understand how to use a slider. If you had any problems, now you know how to troubleshoot a slider. And, you know, the list goes on. And so there is sort of like a lag and there is sort of like a. Um, like a scale in which, you know, your value in terms of your skill set, it goes up and whether it's exponential or just a linear growth, what, you know, whatever, that depends on how much you're doing and how much you're learning. Uh, so that kind of depends on you to an extent, but you know, don't feel bad if you're just at the beginning and you're just trying to sell those business card sites, cause that's natural. And then you'll learn more, learn more, learn more. Oh, you know, I could take on a bigger project. And the reason why you can is cause your skill set grew. Oh, okay. I just did a really big project. Now it's at, that's in my portfolio. What's next? Well, you know, I now know that I can make a, a big project and now other people know because this is on my portfolio. So now I can raise my rates from whatever it was, maybe 10% more, or 20% more, 30% more, whatever you think is fair, whatever the going rate is in the market that you're selling in that type of thing. And so like, don't undervalue yourself, but also don't overvalue yourself as well. Because if, if you don't know what you're doing and you somehow get yourself into a predict into, into a predicament in which you're running uh, some sort of project or even a piece of a project for like a bank or some sort of very prestigious place and you mess the whole thing up, it causes serious problems. People lose money in their bank accounts, whatever. I mean, that's not good. And that's not exactly adding value to your portfolio. So, you know, do the, dare I say, do the grind, but just do things that are going to add value to your portfolio, that are going to add to your skill set. And don't undervalue yourself, but don't overvalue yourself as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a good caveat. I tend to lean over on, on the overvalue. If you're going to be going like on a spectrum, cause everything's on a spectrum, I'd rather overvalue a little bit than undervalue a lot kind of thing. Uh, but I understand what you're saying, especially when you're starting out. I mean, one of the grind techniques, uh, is going to guru and literally like finding clients almost charging nothing just to get that good, those good reviews piled up. And so you're grinding and you're not making any money, but you're building out your portfolio. And with that, you're getting the reviews, you're getting the relationships and that 
can lead to, I'm not saying it's a guarantee, but it can lead to a pretty substantial uh, amount of leads and a pretty substantial amount of, uh, of work coming in uh, if you go that route. So there are ways around this kind of area where maybe it is more beneficial to take on the client when you're first starting out rather than worry about the money coming in. But it all comes down to what situation, where you're at in your learning journey. Like Matt said, are you one month in, two months in, and, and one year, two years, a massive difference in what you can provide the company or what can you can provide your customer. So it there's it's such a variable thing um, that it's really hard to kind of give a whole overarching a- aspect. But in, in general, I think, again, don't undervalue yourself is a really important thing to at least keep in mind when you're uh, starting out and when you're go- getting kind of further down the line. Well, you're, you're right too in that, you know, you do need to stretch a little bit. You don't want to, we, we talk about this later, but you don't want to be stuck in your comfort zone. Like, of course, you're constantly making business card sites and then eventually you do sort of a larger site where it's just, let's say a full small business site is the next step. Um, of course, you're going to be uncomfortable. And of course, you're going to say like, man, I've never done this before, but you're also not completely new at that point you understand the sliders you understand how to render images you understand all these different things that you've learned from doing you know the 250 little business card sites so you're bringing that for the first time and putting it all together but at least you know what's going on is kind of where it is so you have to push yourself a little bit but you know just don't overextend yourself into some like i said some crazy like bank account management <laughs> software or something that you've never used before. And you've somehow convinced them that you do know it's like, good luck with that. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a certain spectrum for that too. Like the, out of the comfort zone, you can either, you know, dive in and learn a little bit more about JavaScript that you're already learning or learn like that adjacent framework to JavaScript, or you can dive in and start all of a sudden take on a project, rebuilding a bank system in Fortran uh, yeah, there's definitely there's definitely certain things that you probably don't want to do. Um, moving on here, though, don't give too much information. Another one that uh, Matt and I have talked about pretty extensively where when you're in a client meeting or when you're making a proposal for a client, don't put like three pages of technical information into there when that client will not read it. Almost all clients especially the non-technical clients, which is most, don't care if you're going to be using React, if you're going to be using JavaScript, if you're going to be using WordPress, if you're going to be using Webflow. At the end of the day, they don't care about the specific tech, but they do care about how it's going to affect their product at the end of the day. So in the WordPress example, right, like a lot of clients associate WordPress with being able to change content. They're not associating WordPress directly with WordPress. They don't know what the hell that is, but they know that, hey, I've had a WordPress site before. I was able to go in there and change the content and I knew how to do that. So that's a consideration to make when choosing a, a product like WordPress, but not the fact that, hey, we need to get into the details that WordPress uses PHP. We're going to need to update servers, we need stuff like that. We can't don't go into the nitty gritties of why WordPress or what WordPress is in your proposal. Just explain that, hey, we're going to be using WordPress to make to make it so that you can change content uh, on your own without having to talk to us. That's clean enough. That's basic enough information for the client to understand. And again, you can use WordPress in there because most likely the clients have heard, of it, heard about it before. A lot of times, if you're not going to use WordPress, this is another little trick that I've heard about, 
is you just say WordPress like experience because everyone associates, again, everyone knows what WordPress is. If they hear WordPress like, they know that, okay, I'll be able to go in there and change it. So you can use those kinds of words, but always think in the mind of your client what they need to know and don't provide them a billion different details because at the end of the day, first of all, they're not going to read it. Second of all, they might get thrown off by it because they just don't understand it and they think they might need to understand it to be able to go with you or something like that. So you could be losing potential clients and you're wasting a bunch of time explaining something that they don't care about. This is a big one for me, especially when writing proposals is I used to write really detailed proposals and then people would agree to them. We'd go through and then they would say, hey, you know, why isn't this you know X being done? And I'm like, well, that that's like I said that in one of the pages, it was half a page. It was a couple paragraphs about how we weren't going to do this. And they're like, well, we need that. Um, so it just proves that they weren't reading it. And so what I do is I still write a pretty detailed proposal. And then I go back and I start cutting things. I reread things. Make sure I'm not uh, reiterating things, uh, keeping things that keeping pieces of information that the client does not need to know. As Mike said, I just cut that right out. Um, just stuff like that. I just kill it. Uh, so then it goes down, you know, from, say, a three or four page proposal to just a one or two, one and a half, something like that. I just kill anything that I question or anything that's like, well, you know, they don't really need to know this. And, and I want to say another thing, too, is. Um, you, know, you might be thinking, you know, maybe you've worked for one client or two clients so far and, and you've worked for someone who's really picky within those first couple of clients. And sure, those people would love to have every single bit of information. But the thing is, is there's so many facets to a website that there's just no way to make everybody happy on every single thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, a really weird, I suppose, but uh, basic example would be maybe they don't want to have a toggle switch to show and hide something. Maybe they want to they want to they, they didn't want to control it. They wanted it to be automatic. They didn't want to move it. And you build out this whole website, whatever. It has this toggle switch in the CMS. And they're like, hey, I don't want, actually want to control this. Uh, but like you're not willing to make those changes. You sometimes just have to say like, hey, like that's how it works. Uh, you know, we're willing to make those changes, but it'll cost more or whatever. You have to kind of pick those battles. You know, it's difficult, especially when a client's like, hey, you know, I, I'm paying you for a good website and like, I don't like this piece of functionality. But if you were, could you imagine going and talk to somebody that doesn't really know what a CMS is and trying to describe to them that this thing is going to automatically show and hide or you're going to control it with a toggle switch. You're going to be like, what's a toggle switch? What's a CMS? What do you mean? And they're not going to know what really is going on. And so it's better in that context to just sort of like have a conversation with them and they'll call you and be like, I don't really like how this works. And I'll be like, hey, sorry, like that's just how it is. We, we have a couple clients where they'll call and complain about stuff and then they just they're just OK with it. And like, sure, that sucks. You don't want to have something that isn't, you know, like perfectly ideal um, for a client. But if you if you take the same concept to something that, you know, isn't necessarily technical, it's like if someone's installing a water heater for you. You might have really liked how your old water heater's temperature was. It was rated in 1 to 10, and you always had it set to 5 or whatever. But the new one is, has a digital display, and you set the degrees Celsius or the degrees Fahrenheit, and you might not like that. Well, the person that's installing the water heater is more than likely not going to bring that up. They're probably just going to say, I'm going to install a new water heater in which you could set the temperature. They're not going to say how. And you might call them and say, I don't like the new way it's set. And they're just going to tell you, sorry, but that's how the new models do it. And then that, that's really the end of the conversation. 
I suppose you could go back and have this argument and have this have this fight and you know this and that. But like, how many people are really going to do that necessarily? Uh, it's just something that like you're not going to be able to tailor to everyone. Some people are details people, some people are not details people, and you kind of want to be in between, providing enough details that the that the people that like details are satisfied, but not completely kind of completely satisfied. And you don't want the people that don't care about details to check out one sentence in. Point form goes through the proposal, quickly gets enough information. Okay, yes or no? Because you're probably going to skip some points anyway. So you want to be kind of have a happy medium. Absolutely. Exactly. And the next thing here is don't take on too much. So what this means is when you're first starting out, this might not be an issue for you because you're just grinding to get those first clients. It's not easy. When you get going a little bit and you start getting your referrals going and you start getting a portfolio, a solid portfolio, you might get to a situation where you have 10 clients coming to you, 15 clients coming to you. And it's really difficult to say no, especially when you have that feast or famine mindset. And contracting, being a freelancer is 100% feast or famine. But the reality is you can only do so much in, in a given amount of time. If you're taking on 10 different projects that are all due at the same time in a month or two, it's going to reflect on every single one of those projects that you've taken on. They are not going to be done in the way that you want them to be done, just period. They're not going to be a good output. You might get something done. You might get all 10 done, some with a delay, some with not, but I guarantee you it's not going to be up to the standards that you had before. So you have to take into consideration the fact that you need to maintain your high standards across the board on the projects that you work on because the bread and butter of this industry is the referrals. If you do a good job for a client, they are more likely to refer you. And that's where like ask anyone, ask any agency, that's where most of their clients come from or longevity with the same client. So some clients will continually bring work to you. If you do a bad job for them, they are not going to do that and they're not going to refer you and it might get to the point where someone might ask them about you as an agency and they're going to say something bad about it. All of that can bring you down. So again, you have to take into account that you cannot take on too much to the point where you're going to you know, crash and burn. Now, having too many clients is not a bad thing. It just means you're probably looking to start expanding. Maybe you need to hire a contractor. Maybe you need to do something. It's not to say that you have to say no, but you have to consider it. You have to consider the fact that you might not be able to accomplish these tasks in the given time frame up to the standard that you want and do something about it. Whether one of the options is saying no to some of those people. One of the options is delaying it, being like, hey, I don't have time right now, but in a month, I'm going to be free up. Let's talk then. The other option is to bring on help. All three of those are viable and with differing levels of complexity. But again, it's important to start thinking about that when you get into the situation. Another thing too is this is, you know, don't take on too much, but it's also the same. The same goes with the undervalue and overvalue. You want to have a happy medium where you don't want to tell a person like, ah, you know, that's too many images. You don't want to start almost complaining to them that you think what they're asking is too much. But when something is clearly above your pay grade, let's say, to, or so to speak, where they're... 90% of the project is just a website, just your standard website with an editor, this and that. But then that last 10% is something like, I actually don't want to use a credit card uh, handling business like Stripe or anything. I want you to make one. 
and you're like, whoa, <laughs> you know, that's a, that, that's above your pay grade effectively. And you can say that. And even if they offer you enough money to say, do it, you can be like, that is, that's out of my wheelhouse. I'm sorry. I don't do that. And don't feel bad about that. I, I find that tech companies a lot of the time feel bad about stuff like that. But think about, again, I always bring it out of tech because tech companies, for whatever reason, have this weird um, thought that, like, everything needs to be up all the time. You need to be able to do everything. Everything needs to be perfect. When, like, think about you call a plumber and you, you like, ask a simple question. Like, some of them are going to be like, sorry, we don't deal with clay pipes. That's it. It's over. They don't deal with clay pipes. It's over. Uh, I don't deal with, uh, you know, aluminum pipes. I don't, I only deal with the new plastic pipe. Sorry. Like there's people, like there's different industries out there. I don't deal with classic cars. I only deal with new cars. Uh, I only deal with Kias. I only deal with, you know, there, there's limits to all these businesses. And so like, that's kind of what we're kind of getting at here is to say, sorry, I do not have the expertise to have this, to do the security on this. But I'll say this, if it's not something that is like the credit card example, if it's something else like, they want us like a really hyper um, customized slider. That's not really a security problem. That's just sort of like, eh, I don't know if I could do that. You just tell them that. Be like, hey, I can build you a site. And phase one, let's do the whole site with a standard slider. I've never done a custom slider like this before. And it's going to take a long time and it's going to delay your project. So what I would propose is why don't I build out the site in the phase one with everything standard, just whatever the way it is. That's 90% of the work. And then the 10% of the work is your custom slider. We'll work on that. I'll see if I can do it. I'm not 100% sure. But in the meantime, you'll be able, you'll be open for business. You'll, your website will be up and running. No big deal. I mean, that's not that crazy. And it, it makes sense. Like it, it, it's, a, it's telling them and informing them, Hey, this is out of my comfort zone, but I'm willing to try it. And like, we'll see how it goes. Now, you don't need to do that for everything. If someone says, I want a slider, but I want like a light box and you've never had. You've, you've done light boxes, you've done sliders, but you've never done a slider that when you click on the image, it opens a light box. You could probably figure that out. You probably don't need to tell them that. That falls under the don't give them too much information. But when it's something really big and you're like, whoa, this is going to take as long as the rest of the project or something like that, or, or in the, in the case of the security with the money, with the credit cards, it comes to a point where it's like, okay, we're not, you know, this is a little out of my wheelhouse. You know, I can look at it or this is out of my wheelhouse. I don't do that. Hopefully it's not a deal breaker. Okay. This is going to be a little bit of a tangent, uh, but (laughs) honestly, I've thought about this a little bit. If someone were to come to us or to me specifically and ask for a credit card processor to be made from scratch, let's say that that is a theoretical scenario that happens Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. I, I think there is a price that I would ask for to do it. And I think it would be in the in the seven figure realm, so in the million dollar realm. So, so I think there's like contract it out. I would probably yes. I would obviously contract it out. I would steal employees from Stripe. I would steal employee like a, a couple of employees from. With just a million though, like you're gonna have a million dollars, and you're just gonna go and t- like be able to poach employees. I think so. I think I could do a, a proof of concept right for this one person. Essentially, get a proof of concept built out. Make it so that in the contract, they don't own it. I'm just building this out as a feature for them. <laughs> but do you Again, see how this is a, this is out of the wheelhouse? Like th- this it, this becomes like it, you know you could take on another client and just yes. like continue your work as as usual versus 
like changing into a credit card processing business. Like this is such a. <laughs> but I would go the I would go into the changing into credit card processing business route is what this I'm is, trying to this say. This is like a tangent. Like I would build a this Stripe like a- competitor. With the seed money from this random client. No, you're changing. The, <laughs> you're changing. This is a this is a business tangent now. Yes, I was just a random tangent that I thought I've thought about this before. Is like how would I handle actu- actually handle if someone is so ridiculous enough to ask me to make a custom payment processor? That's probably how I'd handle it. Two and- thumbs down. Two <laughs> thumbs down from my side. Two thumbs down. No. That's, that's we're, going, we're going into the payment processing business, Matt. It's, it's happening. I mean, you you can run that, and I'll, it'll be like Matt, head of small business, <laughs> and like you can be like head of like head of poaching from Stripe. Like it, no, yeah, I'm out. Sorry, I'm out. Okay. Having said that, let's move <laughs> on a little said bit that, here. Moving yeah. on here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, make sure to add padding to your estimates. So again, when you're taking on too much, this is kind of related. When you are charging for something and you're charging a client and you think it's going to take you three days just in the top of your head you're like ah this you know i have to put this together it's three days the reality is it's probably going to take you more because you're thinking you're thinking in previous projects you're thinking in relative terms it's it's really difficult to estimate development projects in general that's a a very difficult task across the board this isn't a, a you thing this is an everyone thing so Always put padding on it. So if you think it's going to take three days, usually it's at least times two. So say six days, maybe even put more padding on there. I'm just saying from a theoretical sense, usually stuff doesn't take three days. It's like a month or something. So do two months. Best case scenario, you complete it faster. You can deliver it faster. Or worst case scenario, things go wrong. You have that extra padding to use. And it's the same thing in terms of pricing as well. Like if you want to have variable pricing, you can have that padding built into the variable. So Sometimes you can actually give money back to the client in the sense, like just tell them not to char- charge that extra. That is actually a very good marketing technique that I've learned from a painting company. Uh, we had, we hired a painting company a few years ago. And even though I know this is a marketing technique, uh, they gave us a, you know, a quote, an estimate. And at the end of the day, like we actually gave them the full price, but they left us an envelope with like, $400 being like, oh, we didn't, we didn't need this $400 at the end of the day. And we had, that's an amazing experience, right? Like getting money back at the end of a contracting assignment. And we've used them and we've recommended them to like five or six different people. And we've used them again after that. So think about like, that's just like a little tip that I don't think a lot of web contractors are using. Honestly, I have, I've never heard of it in the web contracting business, but in the regular contracting business, I think it is a very common tactic. So Build in some padding, and then if you need it, great. You you have that extra money. If you don't, give it back. Great marketing. Okay, next thing here, let's talk about development. So development don'ts. First thing, don't use any new technology or framework that comes – don't use like any new technology or framework that comes out in a production app. So if something is out yesterday – you don't want to use that thing that came out, whether it's, you know, uh, Bun that just came out recently or uh, Turbo Pack. That's a new flashy Webpack alternative that came out. You wouldn't want to use that in a production project that needs to be up all the time and that needs to have like a million different integrations. Because anything that just comes out might seem flashy and really interesting. And sometimes it is. The reality is it hasn't been fully vetted and fully tested and fully iterated over. Any piece of development tech 
any piece needs to have a lot of vetting, a lot of people coming in and trying different things because there's just so much, there's so much integration stuff out there. There's so much deployment stuff out there. There's so much different tech. There's so many different technologies out there, different libraries that there's no way that this one group of people or one person can make a framework or a tool in the first go and have it like be perfect, never touch it again. It's just never happens in development. It's always an iterative process. They put out their best foot forward, bring in as many people just trying it out for fun, whatever, in small projects and group, like whatever, on their own. And those people will provide the input to build it into something that's more stable. And it could take a year. It could take three years. It could take five years. You have to follow along. You have to see how the issues are treated. You have to, you have to really vet a piece of technology that comes out to be able to actually put it into your uh, tech stack for production for like an e-commerce website or for a, a web app, a SaaS for a, for a SaaS business that's like, you know, doing multi-million dollars. If it's, a, again, it's really different when it's a personal project. If it's a personal project and I say production, that it's not the same thing. If it's a portfolio project, if it's like a, a SaaS that you're creating just to test something out, like all of those, yeah, reach for stuff, learn stuff, that's great. But when you're talking stuff that needs to be up all the time, that has multiple stakeholders, that has investors, that has board members, et cetera, et cetera, that kind of goes out the window. You need to use true and true and trusted technologies and you need to vet every piece of tech that you add to it. Any library goes the same way. You need to add a slider, vet it. Make sure that the issues are up to date. Make sure that people are still supporting it. Make sure there's no security flaws. Any piece of tech you add to those projects should be vetted, should not be anything that comes out yesterday and should be part of the every, – every, every addition to your package.json file should be part of this process. One thing I, I want to add here is um, if, you're, if you're doing something like a, like a WordPress site and you're adding or vetting, I suppose, a WordPress plugin, it's a little bit different. You know, you're not necessarily looking at the GitHub, although you can. But a lot of these plugins, although not all of them, but a lot of these plugins are sold sort of almost like a little app where the company has a marketing site or marketing site and they're selling this app. It's a translation app. It's a credit card handling app. It's a slider, whatever it is. And so you can look right at the reviews there. And sometimes that stuff is new where it comes out like like yesterday but it's been eagerly anticipated. So with stuff that's more say consumerized in this way with the reviews and with the marketing side of things and whatever, with stuff that's more consumerized, you can you can take a look there where you can take a look in the in the areas you would say on Amazon where you can take you can look at the user reviews. You can take a look at maybe a publication has talked about them and they're advertising that. Maybe it's very popular on Product Hunt or whatever. Those type of things. When it when it becomes a little more consumerized and a little less, say, developer-y, if you will, when you're like the only place to look is GitHub. Um, it's just something to consider. The reason why I bring this up is because you're going to pro- more than likely run into a WordPress site that you're building or maintaining for a client, and they're going to look around if they're into the site game at all. If they if they're on your on the WordPress site and they're annoyed by something. They might research something. They might research, how do I edit this differently? You know, is there a better site builder, a better page builder? And they might land on something. 
So some, if they land on something like Elementor, it's like the way to vet Elementor is to look at it and look at the reviews, look how popular it is. People are talking about it. It gets constant updates, those type of things, just like an app in the App Store. And then that's kind of how you would vet it. Look up some YouTube videos. There's tutorials that's popular enough to have many people talking about it, stuff like that. This is like a, what, what's going to end up happening with, with clients? It's a very like real scenario in which they'll come up to you and say, Hey, can we do this? We've had people also with some things, they'll, they'll not understand that something like WordPress has multiple page builders. And so they'll approach me and I've been approached and been like, Hey, you know, uh, you can do that. Like I, I watched this YouTube video and they, they edited the, the site like this and they'll send me the link. You know, why doesn't ours look like this? And it, it's an Elementor video and they're using Beaver page builder. And so they don't realize that there's different page builders. They just probably looked up WordPress page builder and they have no idea. And so you are going to have some instances like that because those plugins, those pieces of functionality are popular enough so that the, that the consumers can find them very easily and understand them versus if they Google something and they find a GitHub page, a lot of consumers are just going to click off because they don't know what's going on. They don't understand the layout of GitHub. They don't know how to download it. There's no flashy, you know, we've been featured in Microsoft Magazine or blah, 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 whatever. There's none of that. It's not a very consumerized experience. And so you are going to have that, that those those moments with clients where you have to vet and possibly even install something that they've found that's a little more on the consumer side of things. Absolutely. That's that, that's a really good point, actually. Like you need you need to take into account the client's needs in this situation and vetting again, those are really good examples of how to vet as well. Like you, you don't just want to look at the code. Sometimes you want to look at the backing area around it and the learning materials and the YouTube videos and the product and all that. Good point, Matt. Uh, next thing here, don't skip accessibility. This is a pretty big one. Uh, this is important for many different reasons. I think the main one being that people with learning, like not learning disabilities, but people with disabilities can actually view the content on your website. That's probably the main point. If you don't, if you skip accessibility and don't listen to this, uh, you're going to leave out a portion of the population. That's just going to be, that's how it is. If they can't read your page with the screen reader, if you have all images with no alt tags, that's it. They can't read your page. On the other side, there's another benefit to accessibility. A lot of that has to do with uh, uh, crawlers, robot crawlers. So like search crawlers and uh, SEO scrapers, stuff like that. They need to see, they need to check what is on your page. And if you use the right structure, the right semantic HTML, the right area tags, the right uh, H tags, it's going to make it so that your content is actually displayed better on those search results or on those open graph images for when people share your content, it's going to be a beneficial in like it's going to benefit your site and it's going to benefit your customer sites if you actually take accessibility seriously. And Google did that very purposely and thankfully because they combined like the SEO aspect of accessibility because they knew that altruistically a lot of people don't care which sucks. I'm just saying the truth here, like the the reality is. So they made this part, the SEO part of it so that people will spend more time on it because now it's like a, a cost factor, right? Like it's actually something that could drive their revenue up. So now they're going to spend time on it. I'm saying that you should spend time on it regardless, but know that it is both. Like you, you it is altruistic now and you get the cost benefit. Next thing here is don't deploy on Fridays. This is a kind of a meme one. Uh, 
Some people, this is one I don't understand. So, sorry, this is one I understand, but some people will actually fight me on this, saying that my system is bad if I can't deploy on Fridays. And I just, I don't understand, like, even if you have the best revert system, even if you have the best uh, deployment system, whatever, the reason you don't deploy on Fridays is the fact that you might miss something that's wrong with your code. And on Saturday, a user or your boss or someone or like a manager might find that issue and tell you to revert. If you, regardless of the system you have, if it's a one click, if it's a two click, whatever, it still requires you to go to your work desk, click on the revert button or open it up on your phone, whatever. Like even if, again, best system ever, it still interrupts your weekend. The reason you don't deploy on Fridays is don't, Mess around so that you interrupt your weekend, you get burnout, all that. Like you're worried on the weekend that someone's going to find a bug. If you deploy on Wednesday, there's two full days of work week for that to happen and for you to be safer in the, in the sense that you don't need to worry on the weekend. That's why you don't deploy on Fridays, not because your deployment system is messed up. Like, I don't know, there's plenty of tools out there, continuous integration tools that make it super easy to revert a commit in a deployment. It's not that big of a deal. But I don't want to be worrying about it on my Saturday, even if it is just one button press. So I, I don't understand. Like I literally every time I talk about don't not deploying on Fridays, I get at least one or two people in the comments on Twitter being like, "Well, you have a bad system then." I'm like I'm not. I'm still not deploying on Fridays. I have the best system. I still am not deploying on Fridays. Well, I, I mean, these. I don't know who these people are to be clear. So like whatever. But like in my mind, because I don't know who any of these people are again. Um, I mean, they could just be very elitist. Like, it could be very much like if you were if you were a better coder, you wouldn't have problems with your code. <laughs> but like, you know, like that's elitist, Maybe. right? Like, like if is it elitist or elitist? I always say elitist, but I think that's a gaming thing. Anyway, whatever. Uh, the point of the matter is, is if you were better at your code and you had a better system and you knew what you were doing better and your cust- and your and your management was better and you had better management skills and you had a better QA department and you were good at what you're doing then you wouldn't need to worry about something going wrong because you're good. And if it goes wrong, you're bad. That's But like that could be one angle that some people take, right? Like that's an elitist point of view. It's like, again, like in the gaming perspective, if you would have a better KD ratio if you were better, why don't you get good? <laughs> I mean, but it's true though. Like that, that, those conversations fucking happen though, you know? Get good. Get good. I mean, yeah, I, why, I, I guess why I'm just you better. Bad. Yeah, I why guess I'm just better? bad. I, I will never... If I can, I will always avoid deploying on Fridays. Period. Here's the other so thing too, though. Is this a thing? Is this the argument where we've had this conversation several times with the whole work-life balance and that? Is this a thing where it's like, no, like we're not going to um, avoid, we're not going to remove deployment from a day or two of the week? Are we going to not? How do I? How do I write? How do I say this? We're not going to write off deployments on one to two days a week. Some people won't do it on Thursday either. We're not going to write off those days as deployment days because we are web developers and that's what we do. So if it comes up on Saturday, I didn't ask if you were out with your family. I told you there's something wrong and for you to fix it because some people do operate like that where it does, where it, it just doesn't matter. I told you to do this, you do it. And this this does happen with people that are extremely dedicated to their jobs, whether they're being forced into it 
be a, by a boss or they're a, a founder and they're like super dedicated. That's how things are is, is, you know, how productive can I be in this life? Well, if I write off one or two days a week for deployments, I'm pigeonholing and changing my entire development schedule just because me and possibly my staff want a day off. I don't care about that. I didn't ask if they wanted time off. We're deploying that. But like, again, that's it's almost elitist, but that's two areas where I could see that happening where I like, like, are you going to avoid doing IT changes to, to slightly change what we're talking about, slightly change the market where are you going to make, are you going to avoid making changes to the network? If you're an network engineer on Friday, are you going to write off Friday? So the network engineers just don't work. It's a question, you know, like it, and I'm, I'm trying to be clear, like, I'm not trying to be cynical or whatever here, but like, that is pr- what I would estimate at face value. Maybe I'm wrong. And if I'm wrong and you have a different reason out there and you're yelling at me right now, like, please let me know what it is. And as I do want to hear it, I'm not trying to be, you know, sarcastic or anything, but like full on, that's two things that like, that stand out in my head. I've been told in the past, you know, our job is 24 seven. And this isn't in web development. This is in another position. It's like our job's 24-7. You answer the phone. That's it. Like, it's just that straight. This system needs to be up 24-7. You answer the phone. It's just that simple. And and that's how it is for some people, right? Whether they're, like, literally paid for 24-7 or whether just the system needs to be up, that's it. Like that's like, so, so people who are stuck in that or who like that, they're going to fight against you and say, that's lazy. Deploy when you're done the work. Don't pigeonhole yourself. You're wasting a third of the week, a quarter of the week, whatever, however many days you're blocking from deployment. You're, you're two sevenths of the week. Three sevenths of the week is gone now. Four sevenths of the week is gone. If it's Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, four sevenths of the week, over half of the week is gone. That's lazy. Like, but that is a, like, am I saying that's right or wrong? I'm not. I'm just saying that it's entirely possible that this is where those people are coming from, right? Those those are justifications for that type of thing. Yeah, it could be the hustle culture aspect. And there's a lot of hustle culture in tech. So I, I, I that wouldn't surprise me. That's, that's maybe it, Matt. You're probably Like the right hustle culture that. makes a lot of sense with that, actually. Yeah. I didn't really, like, relate the two, but that is exactly right. It is the yeah. hustle culture of, like, I didn't like I don't like when people say like hey like it's Friday it's like what does that mean like who cares yeah so you're still doing so right like just just do it I mean but it's true though like so so those people probably think that we're ridiculous for not doing stuff on the weekends but we think they're ridiculous for doing it on the weekends like it's it's just two different arguments I suppose yep probably okay moving on here. Next thing is we're going to talk about Git. So some some Git don'ts. First thing, don't work in the main branch. What does that mean? That means when you're working on a team, this is the key factor here. If you're working on your own, it's a little bit different or quite different. But when you're working in a team, the idea is you want to work on your own branch so that when you complete the change, you can then merge that or create a pull request into the main branch. And the reason for that is, A, you can have people review your code before it's actually merged. B, it's really easy to revert that change if something were to go wrong, 
right? You just revert the entire pull request. You're good to go. And see, you can have multiple people working on even the same file, but have it in a separate cat in a completely separate branch, making it a little bit easier. It's a it's still kind of a pain if it's the same file and merging together, but making it a little bit easier to merge and track that change, right? Because if everyone has their own branch, it's just if you're looking at the Git history, it's a little bit easier to imagine that coming coming down and and merging back into the main branch. So that's kind of the idea of not working in the main branch, like not actually like pushing to the main branch. The other reason for that is the fact that now with a lot of tools like Netlify, like Vercel, like uh, DeployHQ, Circle, whatever, there's a million different tools out there that do your deployments for you. And they do that based on your branch. And a lot of times the main branch will be tied directly to your production deployment. Anytime a push is detected into the main branch, it'll automatically kick off a production deployment. So that's another really important one because if you accidentally like push a change to the main branch that you weren't intending to be live without testing, it will automatically build and deploy without even you touching it. So whether you, you put some like, a smart thing to do would be have production deployments still kicked off manually. So even if you have this continuous deploy- deployment for your like development branches and your pre-prod environments on production, you probably still want to have a manual click of being like, okay, now I want to deploy. So because the reality is a junior developer or even a senior developer might come into a new project and accidentally deploy to production and all of a sudden or de- deploy to main and all of a sudden everything's kind of jank like janked um so you want to avoid that but sometimes it doesn't happen so again in a team environment in a work environment avoid directly pushing to main as much as you can next thing here is don't upload your passwords or your api keys in your environment file to git i feel personally attacked yeah, this I'm telling. This is Matt's this done is a, this, this a is thousand a personable times. attack. This is a person. This is a a, a person personable a personal attack on me. <laughs> yeah, this this is an extremely I have personal full attack. On, I full on published all my keys, public, private, all of it. My username and my password in plain text. I just published it to GitHub in a public repo. There you go. Have it. Take it all. <laughs> you can have it all. You can use it as a as a sample. And. That happens so that it, Matt, you're not the only one. There is a whole slew of people that, that, that have done that. A lot of people. The key here is, is that if it's uploaded to a public repo to do you that, can never scrub it. <laughs> it is there on the internet. It is on in Git. It is inversion control, specifically inversion control. <laughs> so even if you were to re-upload an empty file, someone can go into the history and view your passwords. So what delete do you do? Delete the repo. Don't don't even delete the repo because what happens if it's in saved in the uh, whatever page what? history? Oh, if it's a GitHub, if it's in GitHub, it could still be saved somewhere because it's public. Anything you put in public, anything you put in public GitHub, if you put a secret there, even deleting a repo might not get you out of the woods. So my recommendation, because probably has happened to a bunch of people out there. Change everything that you've uploaded. So if you've uploaded, if you've uploaded the secret, go to that app, 
change your API secret. Ask for a new one. Delete the old one. This if is you why you need passwords are serious too. Correct. If you uploaded a password, change that password immediately. Okay. Because this isn't about a person randomly stumbling on your project randomly, right? Like the chances of that are very slim. There are legit bots that go through, find secrets and automatically try to up, try to log into accounts from GitHub because people have uploaded their AWS secrets in there. And oh boy. <laughs> I mean, the, now, Can the you- benefit that I have is that I did this on a training project that literally went nowhere. So thankfully, I just had like a, like a BS password and I think it was a BS API key. Still freaking happened. I think it was a real API key, but it was like a test environment. So it was nothing in production. So, but yeah. Oh, yeah. Good. Real the, good. The story that I've heard is someone uploaded their AWS key for their entire AWS repository. And what that allowed this bot to do was create Lambda functions for mining Bitcoin or mining Ethereum, whatever. Oh, yeah. And their AWS bill (laughs) was like $10,000 or $20,000. Classic. So there are real financial issues with this. Obviously, if it's something small, you're probably not going to have this situation. But if you upload a AWS API key or really any other API key that can control a virtual machine, you're going to get some bots trying to mine some Bitcoins on there. I'm just going to guarantee you that. So make sure that you're careful with this. Delete everything, change everything and stuff like that. Try not to upload your secrets. The key is to go into your git ignore file and make sure that .env is in your git ignore file because anything in your environment file should not be uploaded to git. That's all I have to say on that topic. The other little thing here is also don't upload node modules to Git. This isn't a security thing. This is more of a pain in the ass because a node modules folder can be like four gigs of, you know, 20,000 files and uploading that to Git and then having someone download that from Git is, um, yeah, it's a problem. So don't, don't do that. <laughs> I've done that before. Uh, that was a mistake. And again, node modules should always be in your Git ignore. Same with your build files, by the way. You don't want to put your build files in, in Git because, again, they could be a lot of files that don't need to be there. You can Anyone can just run their build command and get those files again. That's how it should work. Uh, and the last thing in Git is don't rebase without knowing what it is. So rebasing is potentially the only way you can erase a commit. So like theoretically, like I was saying before, you, you have a commit with the secrets. You can technically rebase it to remove those secrets from your public Git repository. But again, in Git, they still might be accessible through some sort of API or through a history or something like that. So it's still not a recommended, but rebasing again can actually erase a commit and a, and a history and hit commit, commit history or pull request history. So if you, for instance, were to rebase main with a blank repository, you would erase all of the history of the main branch, including all of the commits that went into it and all the pull requests that went into it. And as far as I know, you can't get it back. Um, So if you're going to rebase, make sure you know what you're doing because rebasing is great sometimes because sometimes you can, you know, if you've been working on, for instance, a test 
of like, uh, I need to change this variable to this and then I need to and commit it and, pr- and put it into production. I need to change this variable to this. And it's like a million different changes. You're just trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong. All of those are separate commits. You might not want that in your commit history. So you can rebase that into one commit called testing and it'll erase all that and just have testing there. So that's great. Like you can use it like for that, but know, know that what you're doing when you're using rebase have, if you've never done it before, have a senior developer sitting there, walking through it as you're doing it because it is a dangerous command. And moving on. So we're going to move on to learning. So what are the don'ts of learning web development? First thing here, and we've talked about this a million times, don't get stuck in tutorial hell. What is tutorial hell? Well, if you're constantly reading blog posts, watching YouTube videos about HTML, CSS, JavaScript, if you're constantly reading or constantly going through courses about HTML, JavaScript without writing anything or without writing code, you're just like learning like a, like as if you're in class, right? Constantly. That is tutorial hell. If you're not utilizing the knowledge that you're learning to build something, you're in tutorial hell. So the idea is, and the recommendation from everyone, and we've talked about this in depth before, so I don't want to go too deep here, but essentially you want to have projects that you're building. You want to have like a to-do app or maybe a habit tracker that you need for yourself. Just find something that is interesting to you, right? Maybe a car tracker. It doesn't matter. And use the tutorials and the courses to find the skills that you need to build that project. And while you're learning, use it and build like actually build the project. And what that's going to do is it's going to make sure that you actually solidify the skills that you're learning. And then at the end of the day, you're going to have something to show on your portfolio. You're going to have a little bit of momentum going in your coding. You can't learn code 100% from reading and listening and watching. You have to apply those skills. There's so many little caveats that those YouTube videos do not show you that those blog posts and the step-by-step guides do not tell you that just being like, hey, I've watched, you know, I watched a course on React. Uh, maybe I can try to apply to these React jobs. It's going to go, it's, you're going to have a bad day. If you, even if you get in, like if you th- theoretically get in somehow, like you're going to have a bad day. There's going to be setup environment issues. There's going to be uh IDE issues, there's going to be technological issues, there's going to be React issues that just like stuff goes smoothly in a course, stuff does not go smoothly in real life. That's just that's just how it works. And you need to be able to go through all that troubleshooting to be able to get to the other side and figure out how to be okay with it, be okay with stumbles, be okay with the pitfalls and stuff like that. And the only way to do that is to actually code. There is also like the the idea as well that like there there's a reason why shop class is like has you go into the shop. They don't just show you videos and talk to you about the safety and then talk to you and show you videos about how to build things with wood if it's a woodworking class. There's a reason why even in high school they take you down to the actual shop after teaching you the safety and then probably show you some in-person safety tips and then have you actually use the saws and the sanders and all that stuff. There's a reason why that is, is because there's no way for you to get practiced up in something that's a hands-on skill uh, without practicing it. Uh, The same thing can even be said about theoretical topics like math. 
There's no way you're going to be able to just watch videos on math from something like MX plus B all the way through parabolas and advanced functions and calculus and then just be able to do it. You just can't remember it all because you were only shown it briefly. Think about all the things you've forgotten that you've seen briefly. It's not like you remember all, all the faces of all the people you've ever walked by in a crowd. You know, that's ridiculous. So you just have to you have to really see web development as a uh, hands on skill and you have to get in there and, and work on some stuff. And you're not going to do it the most efficient way the first time. You're not probably going to do it the most efficient way possibly ever. You know, there's but you just got to work on it, get better. But you but in order to actually memorize it or not, not, not memorize, memorize a bad way to say it. But in order to actually learn it, you do have to practice it. If I don't do CSS for a while, for whatever reason, and I go back to CSS, I am rusty at it. It's the same way with anything else. If I haven't ridden a bike in a while, like I'm going to be rusty at riding a bike, despite the the fact that people are like, it's like riding a bike. It's like, sure, I get the I get the general idea and I'm able to approach it quickly or approach it faster than other people who were not versed in it, who, who maybe never learned it. And by you watching a bunch of videos, you're going to be able to approach coding in a more, uh, let's say like a fat, like you're going to be able to approach it appropriately. You're going to know there's a setup. You're going to know, know generally what code looks like. You're going to have an idea. You're familiar with the environment. And so you have a leg up, but you still need to actually do it in order to get better at it and to really just learn how to do it. Yep. 100%. You need to do it. You need to sit down and actually write that code. Next thing here is don't just copy paste code without understanding why or how it works. Um, I will have a caveat here. You don't need to understand it super deeply. Like you don't need to understand every line of the code or every piece of every character and how it's doing it. I don't think you need to go super deep to use some cop like some code that you found on Stack Overflow. If you understand overarchingly how it's doing it, like this is how it's using a for loop, all with it, like. You know, this is using a for each loop instead of a regular for loop. Understand the basics of it. It's okay to copy paste because then you know when something goes wrong, what's causing that thing to go wrong most likely, or at least you have an idea of where to go. That's the main reason that people say don't just copy paste code is because if you don't, if you don't know anything about the code that like you've never seen a loop before and you're copy pasting a loop into your code and something is wrong, how are you ever going to be able to debug that? You don't even know what a loop is, right? So you need to at least have a basic understanding of the stuff that you're copying to then be able to, first of all, implement it correctly. And second of all, if anything goes wrong, you be able to debug it and fix it. Those are the reasons that we say that. It's not, It's not. first of all, it's not plagiarism related. Like Stack Overflow code is obviously not under any sort of copyright. So you can copy all you want. And second of all, it's not related to the fact that you need to like be in-depth knowledge in every little piece of JavaScript and stuff like that. No, it's it's just you need to be able to fix the stuff that you write. And if you don't understand it from the base level, it's just it's going to be a, a problem, a challenge for you going down the line. Okay, next thing here is uh, don't learn a framework like React, Vue, Svelte before learning JavaScript. If we, I mean, Matt and I hammered this point many times. Uh, it's important to know the foundational element before jumping into something that's building on top of the foundation. Just like with when you're constructing a house, you want to build the foundation first. It's the same thing with this because 
And the main reason, again, is the fact that if something goes wrong, you won't know if it's the JavaScript going wrong or the framework going wrong. And it's going to lead you down rabbit holes all the freaking time. And yes, I do want to clarify, you can learn it this way. It's not, we're not saying that learning React before learning JavaScript is not possible. 100% possible. People do it all the time. We're just saying that it's a little bit easier for you and it could be quite a bit easier for you to build that foundational knowledge and then learn any framework on top of that because you, you know how these frameworks operate. And when something goes wrong, you have a very good idea that, Hey, this is where I need to search. This is what I need to Google. This is what I need to find. I need to, this is in the documentation. This, like, I, this might be in the documentation. This might not be. And that will get you to the end result a lot quicker. In a, in, a, in a lot more of a sustainable way as well, whether rather than just like hoping for the best in a learn, let's learn React and then JavaScript kind of thing. For a complete beginner, it's also good practice if you're learning JavaScript because you're kind of where you are exercising those sort of, let's say, baseline programming skills. And so you're going to know uh, let's say, let's say you learn base JavaScript and you know that you want to scan through an array is probably a way that someone doesn't know programming would, would, would say it. I want to scan through this array. They know they have an array of topics, an array of thing. They've got that loaded, but they're like, well, how do I scan through this? Well, somebody who knows JavaScript would say like, oh, I'm going to loop through it. I'm going to go through it and like loop, loop through it. And they know they're looking for a loop. So when you're trying to do that in React, instead of your Google search being like, how do I scan through a bunch of a bunch of uh, variables or something like that, you're going to end up actually saying like, how do I loop through an array? And so your Google searches are going to be a little bit different. The key there is that that Google search is virtually the same as the other Google search for another framework. You could say, how do I loop through an array view? How do I loop through an array react? How do I loop through? So you're getting some of the jargon and you're getting the, the idea that, Hey, I need to loop through this. And if that framework for whatever reason handles it, differently where it doesn't use loops there's going to be more than likely guides that are out there that say like do not loop through your arrays in react do this so they're they're pointing you in the right direction whereas you just saying how do i scan through this well like scanning through it isn't really clear you're not really you know it, it, it's no one's gonna write an article that ranks for that because everyone's gonna say it a little different how do i flip through how do i you know there's too many sort of layman terms if you will to go through it, but knowing just a little bit of that jargon, how do I loop through this? How do I use a loop to scan through an array even is better because people know oh, I use a loop. I go through it and I like check each of the things in the array and I display them or I'm deleting one. That's an odd number or like whatever it is, you're getting those sort of baseline uh, programming things down like conditional statements, like ifs, like, you know, oh, I need to make like a basic decision here. How do I do an if in React? How do I do a conditional statement in React? Those are good. Not like, how do I make a decision in React? Well, <laughs> you know, it's too open. And sure, like you will find results. And like Mike said, it you will be able to do it. You'll figure it out. You'll you'll find out, oh, this is an if and this and that. But you, you could see how that's another step. And so by you learning JavaScript first, now you have you've exercised that knowledge. JavaScript is a skill that you can use and get paid for. And then you can go into React and stuff like that and learn those things. Having having exercised, especially for the complete beginner, those basic programming concepts. 
Yep. That's a, exactly how I would put it as well. Like it's, it's just an, it's an important part of the, the learning journey. It's not a requirement. Again, everything comes with a little bit of a caveat because let's say, for instance, you just can't stand JavaScript, but all of a sudden, but you, you kind of like React. If that's the case and if React is going to keep you going in the learning journey, then, you know, weigh the two options. It's okay. Like go learn React first if that's the situation. But the reality is it's better to learn the base technology first. The last thing here, don't stop learning. So as a web developer, regardless of what stage you're at, senior, junior, mid-level, L5, Z6, I'm just saying random things now, uh, you have to keep learning. Technology is coming out constantly. The, the tools that you're working with are being updated constantly. The web crawler is being updated constantly. Web browsers are being updated constantly. Stuff is being deprecated. If you stick to your knowledge base now, like just, you know, blinders on, and regardless of what's being updated, it will become a problem down the line. It's, I'm not saying it might. I'm saying it will. There is no way around it because, again, a browser being updated to stop supporting, for instance, like the slash in CSS or stop supporting some JavaScript internal function, that will affect your code base if you don't keep up with the technology. Like that's minimum. That's the minimal stuff that you have to learn, obviously. So most people will always keep up with that. But on the other hand, if you're not, if you're, you know, using an older framework and your app is lagging and it's slow and there's a new framework out there that's 10 times as fast, that's been vetted five, 10 years already, and you're still stuck in the old framework, they might bring on an engineer that can use the new framework and you might be left in the dust. That's also a, a potential reality because they're, you know, they might be going out there and talking to some other people and being like, hey, I built the same app and it's 10 times faster. And it was 10 times easier to build because it's got 10, 10 years more experience packed into the new technology. Like there is a reason why you should stay up to date in web development. Stuff evolves very quickly and gets better. Like developer experience has been a huge focal point over the past three years, I want to say. Like stuff like to web tooling, like de deployment technologies like Vercel and Netlify, continuous integration technologies that plug right into GitHub. All of that has been a huge, has seen a huge uplift in three years time, like not even that long. That makes deploying, managing full stack applications way easier. A, like one person can build all the APIs they need, all the database connections they need, all the deployment infrastructure they need, and have scaling as well. That's something that was not accomplishable easily by one person three years ago. If you don't stay up to date with that kind of stuff, you might still be in the mindset that you need 10 people to manage scaling of your databases. When in reality, if, I mean, unless you're some massive corporation that needs, you know, 10 million connections all at the same time, you probably could handle it with something like planet scale or something like that. Like you, there's a tool out there that can do it, that can do your job, the job of 10 people. And I'm exaggerating here and I'm oversimplifying, obviously, but this, these situations in variations can happen. And if you don't stay up to date, you're doing yourself a disservice, right? Now, I'm not saying you have to 
learn every day and just spend every second of the day learning and trying new things and constantly pushing the envelope. No, I'm just saying every once in a while and, and you know what? Hats off to Google on this one. I, li- I like their strategy here. They have an 80-20 rule where 80% of the time you're working on your main focus and 20% of the time you're learning new things. You're doing a, a, like a project, a crazy project. You're trying new technologies and stuff like that. And I kind of like to stay by that rule too where I'm, I am consistently learning, but it's only like 20% of my week, if anything, if that. Even if it's 10% of your week, that's still a really good portion. Right. Because you want to be deep in the knowledge that you currently need. That's a really key thing, too. You don't want to be learning everything all at once. You want to be good. Like if you're a React developer, a good React developer is very valuable. So going deep inside React, that's great. But if you spend 10% of the week, you know, learning the deployment infrastructure or learning Docker or learning Vue or some some other framework, that's only going to benefit you. The big thing that's difficult here is it, it is your comfort zone and it is something that like me personally, I feel like an idiot when I start learning stuff, which I am like, obviously, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fool. Like, I don't know what's going on because I'm just started learning whatever it is. But that's a difficult feeling. Um, and even though, you know, I notoriously do to this because I do struggle with this general concept. But even though I do stay in my comfort zone, which is partially foolish, I still upgrade my knowledge within those technologies. I still stay, you know, up to date in that way. And I will eventually, even though it's like pulling teeth, I will eventually upgrade my knowledge. Like me diving into Webflow, you know, seems like an out uh, to get away from coding, but it was what our clients needed. We had a client that went through tons of different options. We built, we built him out actually a site gave him proposals, this and that. And then Webflow was what he needed and we were willing to do it at the time. So we took the plunge and learned that tool. And now we have a few different client sites on there. Um, just things like that uh, are really sort of crucial. Like you, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to go from, let's say an expert where maybe you're an expert in all things vanilla, HTML, CSS, JS, you're an expert there. And then you go and you're a complete fool in React. I mean, you are like, you don't know what you're doing. Um, of course, but that's not like an insult calling somebody a fool. It's like, you don't, what you're doing, you're a beginner, you know, beginner is another way to say it, a, a kinder way to say it. You don't, you know, I, I'm a beginner, you know, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing in whatever it is I'm learning and that's fine. Um, you know, it's a difficult pill to swallow, especially if some people are like, well, you know, you should know better than that now. It's like, I, I don't actually, cause I, you know, I'm new here. So like, how would I type thing? Um, it's just, it's a difficult thing, but like it is, it is a necessity. You know, it is, you know, you do need to upgrade, change, adapt. And even for someone like me who hates doing it, I still do do it. Not as often as I should, because <laughs> I'm obviously going to put up like a resistive wall there, if you will, but uh, I still do it because it's, uh, it's needed. That is 100% right. Get out of your comfort zone uh, and be okay with sucking at stuff. I was told Easier that. said than done, though. Easier I was told said that than recently. done. Wait, what? Yeah, someone told me to just be okay with being shit first because that's the only way to get better. It's true. You're always going to suck at it when you first maybe, start. It's just the maybe reality. Maybe if you deployed on Fridays. I mean, should I? I should. I might deploy on Friday, this Friday just be, just because I'm not elitist. <laughs> if you deployed on Fridays, okay. Let's let's. Pre- this is a joke now, by the way. I want to be clear to everybody. If we if you deploy on Fridays, you would not want to work on the Saturday and the Sunday, but 
mistakes would happen because you're new to the thing. So you would force yourself to learn faster to become good at what you're doing. Therefore, theoretically, mistakes would not happen or realistically, mistakes would be mitigated, not completely eliminated because we're human. So therefore, Mike is going to deploy on Fridays only. (laughs) What a conclusion. Like, (laughs) uh, no, I am not deploying on Fridays almost ever. Check Mike's Twitter this Friday coming up. (laughs) He's going to be doing a big deployment. He's going to redeploy every site he's ever done ever into production. Please no. And then he's going to plan a trip that weekend so that the stakes are even higher. (laughs) Oh, please end this. (laughs) In theaters and IMAX Friday. Before I go crazy, Matt, end it. Well, if you want to hear episodes like this or you want to see Mike in the feature film, please end it, which sounds really like bad, but we'll, we'll put a sub- hang on. We'll put a subtitle on it. Put a subtitle on it. Please end it. The deploying on Friday story, just so it doesn't sound as ominous. Okay. In theaters and IMAX Friday. But if you want to support episodes like this or support Mike's movie making attempts, I suppose, because he's a fool because he didn't deploy. Okay. I'm just going to stop there. Anyway, if you want to support episodes like this, please go check out our Patreon. We have a $1 tier, just which is like a tip, and then a $3 tier as well if you want to be listed in the end of each episode, just like these fine people, Ryan Gatchel from Blue Black Digital, blueblackdigital.com, Chris from Self-Made Web Designer, selfmadewebdesigner.com, Tim from The Web Hacker on thewebhacker.com, Dave Hashtash, NineBlockMedia, NineBlockMedia.com, Jason from Geek Life Radio via geekliferadio.com, Michael Curie from MC Web Studio via mcwebstudio.ca. Magnus from YesWeb via yesweb.se. Jeff from Twitter via at the Jeff McHale. Fire Ant Season via fireantseason.com. And Watoto Coding via watotocoding.com. Feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform you're listening to this on. And don't forget to rate Mike's new movie on Flickster or whatever the hell is out there now. <laughs> and we are signing off been listening to html all the things podcast web development web design and small business we hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show and we hope you appreciate that we talk to you like human beings and we hope you had some fun we'll be back soon but in the meantime hit us up on social media on facebook instagram and patreon at html all the things and on twitter at html everything Until next time, this is HTML All The Things, signing off.